Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. we thank you and we bless you and we honor you that you are truth and that there's no way in the world we can have a life that's separate from you God that's without you God and so we place our confidence in what you have done for us through Christ we submit our lives to you and submit our thoughts to you and prepare our hearts to turn more deeply heavenward because we know without a shadow of a doubt that we can't live without you God In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. How many of you acknowledge you can't live without him? Or you can do better than how many of you can acknowledge that you can't live without him? Amen. Amen. Well, let's um, go ahead and stand to our feet as we get down to business. Let's um, dive in. Philemon verses 8 through 16. Read together on three. One, two, three, go. series on Philemon. We're family now. Father, um, help us to plow through the needed places that we as the church locally, nationally, and internationally need to plow through. Very important subject matter that I know that all of us know, whether we like it or not, we can no longer avoid. So God, be with us today and help us to not rush through the problem, not fight quickly to find a solution, 
um, but help us to really, really deal with our issues as the church so that the solution can have good effect. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer in whom we trust. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Everybody agree with that said? Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you may be seated. Philemon. Philemon, last week we started a series through one of the micro books in the New Testament. Yet, we can clearly see that although it is a micro book in size, it has a massive message. And as we're working through this book, we're working through um, a letter that's written to a slave owner, written to a slave owner by the Apostle Paul. And he is writing to him about his slave and his slave coming to Christ and now how to relate to him. And as I look at this book, it is unduly impossible to look at this book and act like we don't understand our history in this country. It's impossible um, to ignore it because I think it speaks deeply um, to what a problem we have in America today is the church is not functioning as a family. And in light of the church not functioning as a family, you have to go through and wonder why are we so dysfunctional? Um, there, there are a lot of things that go into that. Of course, my, my good theological students will point us back to Genesis chapter 3. But might I say to you that Genesis chapter 3, talking about the fall, is a way to actually deny the individual, functional, and systemic sins that we actually deal with. Whenever you just say, well, we all are sinners, and we can point it back to the ultimate fall of humanity, what we do is we deny our personal contribution in our personal and national sin to the functional dysfunction that we have as a, as a church. And so I know I'm not going to get no amens today. It's, it's, I, done, I done prepared myself for it already. Um, I done prepared myself for it already. It's okay. Um, but it's interesting, as a pastor, I get to, I do counseling. And, um, and, and, I, and I get to do counseling. And I, and, I, and I know that there are many of you in here who do counseling. And whenever um, it's a single person or a married person or whoever we're working through issues with, one of the key things in counseling that you have to work through if somebody is in a crisis or a stronghold that they're unable to get out of, one of the things that you have to walk them through is family history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, family history helps sort of give you a framework for how a person was nurtured in a sinful world. Not, that's, not just that sin exists, but you have to ask what sins contributed to the person or persons sitting in front of me. <laughs> and, 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 in, and in light of that, <clears throat> going through family history gives us key components of what worked into the brokenness that that person needs to do hard work by faith in Christ to work through, to deal with and unearth what created the human being that's sitting in front of me. It's interesting that we can do that much ideological work in counseling. It's interesting that we understand that family history has a deep impact on a life of a person, but it's, it, it, it blows my mind that in American Christianity today, we act like our familial past has nothing to do with our familial present. 
And, 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 it, and it, it, it's mind-boggling to me how dismissive white evangelicalism can be towards the past as a way to act like it doesn't exist. There, there, is, a, there is a challenge, brothers and sisters, uh, that we need to get into, and I shouldn't have to qualify every last one of my statements. Um, I, I should be able to just preach it like I see it. In other, in other words, we need to do an autopsy on the family of American Christianity. We need to do an autopsy. And, and, as, and as I look at a text that is about us being family, I wrestled through some things. It's a book that came out by um, a man named uh, uh, McDur McDurman, and the book is called The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. He's a white guy just in case you think it's just a black mad person. Y'all know, come on now. <clears throat> he says, he says, most churches force black brethren into segregated sections of pews labeled African corners, nigger pews, <clears throat> or BM, mem black member pews, <clears throat> or sometime a choir loft <clears throat> labeled nigger heaven. Whites fiercely protected their own section from intrusion from blacks during the time when pews were rented or owned by paying individuals. A black man in Boston once obtained a white pew due to an outstanding debt. <clears throat> so that means the white person owed him money. <clears throat> he said, give me your pew and that'll pay for the debt. He was warned not to stake the pot or stir the pot, but to sit instead in the black pews where he was told to belong. When he braved the risk, he found a Philadelphia constable guarding the pew. He decided it was not worth it after all. In another case, in Randolph, Massachusetts, a black man even won a legal suit for his ownership of a white pew only to turn up on Sunday morning and find it covered with tar. Um, when we look at this type of history, you can't tell me that this type of history doesn't impact practically how we view ourselves as the church. Okay, you say up, date, up to date. Um, a few years ago, I was um, invited by a man named Doug Wilson to preach for him. And one of my pastor friends, white brother, said, Pastor Mason, have you, have you like, checked money out? He didn't say money, I just added that. <laughs> and I said, nah. So he pulls up his iPad and pulls up Doug Wilson's work. White reformed leader known as a great thinker. And as I began to read some of the appalling ideologies of a pedo confederate, he calls himself, um, he wrote a book that says slavery as it once was. And he is attempting to revise how white America and black Americans view slavery. And he says, slavery wasn't as bad as we make it out to be. It's been over-exaggerated. He even goes even further to say, he even goes further to say that relationships between blacks and whites were at its best during slavery and the Jim Crow South. Now, this may seem shocking to you. What's even more shocking to me is I talked to him by phone and jammed him up in Jesus' name. 
Um, but then what was more painful to me, and I will not mention his name, but I called a reformed evangelical pillar. If I named him, you would know who he was. And I called for him to give a public rebuke to Doug Wilson. And he told me he believes that he's blind and misinformed, but, quote, Dr. Mason, he is not racist. And so I've been impacted by this person's books, and I thereby backed up. And he said to me before we got off the phone, he said, brother, I hope this doesn't impact my impact on you. And I was quite not myself by the time I got off the phone. And as I look at this passage, <laughs> y'all are quiet, quiet, quiet. It's okay. Um, this passage arrests me because when I look at where we were and where we are, it concerns me. Um, um, it, it concerns me because we don't, I don't believe we really are letting the word of God dig into our comfortable places of systemic sin. So today, I got one point, one point only for my point, people. Number one and only point, we're family now? The question is, still on the floor. Point, being God's family is a biblical reality, but must be a passionate choice of the heart. <laughs> Let me say that again. Y'all must didn't get that. <clears throat> being God's family is a biblical reality. But we must be, it, but, but it must be a passionate choice of the heart. Mm. <laughs> Tough room. Verse 8. He says, for this reason, although I have good, great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right. Stop right there. <coughs> Paul um, does a little bit of flexing. You ever seen somebody that's already swole, but they flex a little bit of muscle to let you know how swole they really are. Paul is doing a quasi-flex here. In other words, he said, I could apostolically jam you up right now. In other words, I can use the fact that I was once blind, but now I see and have been taken to uh, the Gentiles and to the Jews to be a light for Jesus Christ and big up my title as the number one contender of writers of the New Testament. I, I can talk about all of the I can talk about all of the exploits of me casting out demons and healing the sick and raise, I can put some stuff up on you that would reflect my ability to command you to deal righteously with a slave that I'm sending back to you. Um, but Paul, interestingly enough, doesn't do that. And what I like about this is a question is going to come up in the mind of Onesimus, I believe, and, and I think it should be helpful for us because his statement helps us to understand something. Are you pastorable? <laughs> the question is, are you pastorable? Are y'all still trucking with me? I mean, I can cut the tension and silence with a knife in here. And so <laughs> I'm just making sure y'all still there. And, and so, and so, uh, pastorability is the ability to hear what you don't want to hear, yeah. 
but know it's true and submit to it. Ain't nobody going to talk back to me. Ain't nobody going to talk back to me. <clears throat> um, um, being, being pastorable means that if I'm confronted, if I'm confronted with what God wants me to do, you may make me angry, 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 angry. Yet when the dust of the storm of my soul's anger settles, I know that every word from God is not a word I like to hear from God. And if you train yourself on your affirming amens and not your broken grunts, you won't be the best Christian you could ever become. And so here in this text, we, 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 we find ourselves at a hard point. This is a hard point where, where, where he's going to not command, though. I love what Paul does here. It's brilliant. It's brilliant what he does. What does he say next? He says, I appeal to you instead on the basis of unconditional love. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, he had a right. He had a right to go off. But he said, I'm going to, I'm going to do a non-command command. I'm going to ask you, <coughs> to do this <clears throat> from a spirit of love, my love for you and my love for him, and then lastly, my question of whether or not you love him. <laughs> Just in case you don't know what love is, the Bible says love is not self-seeking. Love is not irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. <laughs> love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's love. Just in case you don't know what it is, and just in case you want to apply that to this, I, 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 I like one translation says, love takes no joy in injustice. I like that. I like that. I like that translation, that it doesn't take joy in injustice. And in doing that, Paul is calling him to a magnificent form of love. And so what he does, he says, this is all out of love, family. And as he begins to say this, he says, he says, I do this out of great love. He said, I appeal to you and said on love. He said, I, Paul, as an elderly man. He said, I'm an old man. I ain't going to punch you in the face or nothing. He said, I'm an OG now. You understand what I'm saying? I'm, I'm an OG. He said, I don't have time for a bunch of arguing anymore. He said, I'm an old head now. You know what I'm saying? We let y'all young bucks scrub out the stuff like that. He said, but I'm an OG. And he said, OG use our words, not our hands. You understand what I'm saying? And so, and so when we look at that reality, look at what he says. He says, and now as a prisoner. So Paul, what, what bewilders me um, and brings me almost to tears is that I, I remember um, doing prison ministry and getting letters from prisoners. And, so, you know, sometimes when you get a letter from prisoner, you want to, you, you know, what to take seriously, whatever. But that letter is folded up, and all of them are neat. Some of the guys, they have so much time on their hands, just the stuff they're able to do while they're in prison and focus on. And I was in the Bible Museum yesterday, and I, and, I, and I looked back and realized, even as I was studying this, that this is a prison letter. That this was a letter written by a prisoner that many of us would have looked at probably a little bit weird, but Paul 
communicates as a prisoner. He writes in a prison a letter for somebody else's freedom, not his own. I have some more other hard things to go through as it pertains to this, but I'll save them for later unless you can't bear them now. And so we as brothers and sisters in Christ, why do, why does white evangelicalism have to be commanded? Commanded to deal with racism. Why do we have to write treaties and books for white evangelicalism to value black life? It's quiet in here. It's all good. Um, why, why, why in the world do we have to, I have to make a stealth and robust and stout argument for us to unify around issues of race and justice in this country. Why can't I just mention it to you and it quickly convict you and you turn the boat of your life towards dealing with it versus having to give you the history of slavery and give you footnotes and endnotes and bibliographies and reading assignments and YouTube channels. And why in the world is it so much work to just say I repent? Why? It's a lot of work and it's painful. It's painful when you've been historically raped and then you're on the witness stand being cross-examined as if you did something wrong. It's painful. How dare you cross-examine those raped? As the offender, someone is sitting under here today, what do I have to do with it? You stand on the shoulders of it. Someone says, you're here in anger. No, I'm, uh, well, I am angry. But uh, the Bible says be angry, but sin not. It didn't say don't be angry. And so don't, don't, don't squirm too much in your seat. Let the Holy Ghost work. Because we all need to get our minds and wrap our minds around this reality where we have to fight. I, we have to fight two fights. We have to fight two fights. <laughs> well, actually, three. You've got to have a self-fight. Then you got to fight the hell in the community and in the world that comes against Christianity. But why on earth do I have to turn a sword towards my brethren? I should be joined by my brethren. I'll never forget some of my white pastors hit me up during a particular time. And they said to me, they say, Pastor, our sword is yours. And if you understand war battle... Somebody, it may not be their battle, but they're in another jurisdiction or district. And they say, we know that the fight, it wasn't struck specifically at me, but because they struck you, they struck me. And because they struck you, they struck me. I'm picking up my sword and I'm getting on a jet and we're going to mount up together and we're going to fight the battle together. That's the type of commitment that we need in the body of Christ. That's the type of ferocious veracity that we cross ethnically need. Don't try to even out the playing field to talk about everybody else around the world who suffered. Don't do it. I hate it. It's a punk move. Listen, you can't deflect on, you, every, it's, it's interesting. When it comes to black suffering in this country, they always want to bring up somebody else's suffering versus dealing with the suffering. If they talk about the Jewish suffering, nobody says, well, what about the blacks? You never hear anybody do that. But when, you, when, the, when, the, when the blacks say, well, you guys ain't have a harder time as the Jews. Well, the Jews had a season. We had 400 years in two years. Y'all quiet. It's okay. 
And so when we look at this reality, <laughs> these rebuttals, these broken rebuttals do nothing but further divide. Why are you being divisive, I was asked this week? Why are you being divisive? A major Christian leader asked a friend, why is Eric being divisive? I'm saying, I didn't know I started the fight. I've been called a racist this week. That's crazy. That's like impossible. Like how's, how's anybody of an ethnic minority status racist? Like that, I'm confused by that. And just, just bear with me today, y'all. I'm just thinking through some things while I'm in the context of the body, you know. But it's interesting. Verse 10, he says, appeal, I appeal to you for my son. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. He upgrades it now. This is going to make it real hard. He said, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. <clears throat> so we'll see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, that Onesimus is first mentioned. Um, Onesimus is mentioned as a brother over there. But Paul, I don't know what the response from Philemon was, but Paul ended up having to write an entire letter to send Onesimus, a slave, back to his slave owner. Can, do y'all understand? Like, y'all don't really understand that, and I'm, I'm explaining that in a second. But he calls him his son. What does he mean by that? That while Paul was chained and on house arrest, renting a home, he's on house arrest, but he's still chained in the house so he won't go anywhere. Onesimus was sent either by either he is it's two theories. He ran from Philemon to go to appeal to Paul, or Philemon sent him to Paul, to serve Paul in, 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 in certain ways, and he wasn't a believer. Now, you know if you're around Paul the Apostle. At some point, if you don't know about Jesus Christ, he's going to somewhere come up in the conversation. And at some point, Paul and his chains begin to talk about creation, fall, and redemption and he began to talk to him about the fact that Christ died for his sins and was raised from the grave on the third day. And at some point, Onesimus placed his faith in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And he was immediately transformed from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Yet spiritual death and spiritual life impacts other life things when you're changed by the gospel. Ain't nobody going to talk back to me, but that's okay. And what I love about this, and what I love about this reality is he said, this is my spiritual son. I led him to Christ with my own mouth. And I am his father in the gospel. And so this adds heavy footing on to what he's about to <coughs> communicate to Onesimus. It's interesting uh, uh, to Philemon, Onesimus is interesting because his name means profitable or useful. That's, that's what it means. That's what it means. And so as he goes, it says in verse 11, he says, once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. Ah, ah. Ah, so he's playing on words. He's talking about his usefulness as a believer, not an unbeliever. 
And he said, now that he's been changed by the gospel, the gospel has changed his status. <laughs> the gospel, let me say that again, you didn't get it, has changed his status from not being user-friendly to now being user-friendly. And now that he's user-friendly, he's playing on the words of the name Onesimus with the Greek word for useful. So he's playing with, his name is Onesimus, but his use of his good double-tongued word play like a hip-hop artist would do in a good lyrical song. I don't know if we have that anymore, but we thank God for this lyricism right here in this text. Hallelujah to the name of Jesus. Verse 12. <laughs> he says, listen to how he lays this on. I am sending you, sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. Now, why was Paul pouring it on this thick? Because even though their system of slavery was different than transatlantic slave trade America, where people sold themselves into slavery and there was a, there was a, a bringing in by choice at times or, uh, or by generations, whenever a slave was gone either for too long or left, there was severe punishment, just like our slavery in this country, of a major beatdown. So Paul is appealing to him not by command to beat him, but by love. Now, I can't imagine this. <clears throat> no, I can't get ahead of myself. I got to say that next. Um, he says... Verse 13, I wanted to keep him with me, but I couldn't, he's saying. So that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. And then he goes further, and this gets sticky. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. He submits himself to the slavery system that he doesn't have to in order to encourage Philemon to deal with Onesimus righteously. Now we're going to see some things in a second. It says, so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. I remember on the Martin show, when Martin first got engaged, tried to ask Gina to marry him. He asked her to marry him in a way that felt so obligatory. It was just like, now I said it, and you know the word he said after that, right? But he said, will you marry me, Gina? <laughs> right? If you remember that, who watched it. And I don't know any woman... <clears throat> that will feel loved by that question being said that way. And I don't know if we can do the same here. We don't want obligational engagement of the issues of race and justice in this country. Not just obligation, even though I do believe the gospel compels some things. I think it has to get in a point where the affections of your heart Meet the biblical command. 
that, that changes it. That, that changes it. It changes, it changes if a brother in Christ, if another black man or black woman is killed by a police officer unjustly, that you come to your brother's door with tears in your eyes and say, and hug and say, I don't understand this fully, but how is this affecting you? Wow. The, 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 the lingo, I, I, I know we're dealing with a lot in our country with race issues, and I don't know how to, I'm not going to claim that I know how to do this, but I know that this has to be affecting you because you're my brother. You're my sister in Christ, and it demands that I know, based on Romans chapter 12, how to get to the point to weep. That's my problem with quick solutions. My problem with quick solutions is it's to tether the need for tears. The need for problem solving versus dealing with the problem itself. It's interesting. I thought about this. I have five brothers, five. And I don't know if I can see me owning them. I, I don't know if I could see my sibling calling me master. I don't know if I can, I'm gonna use you as an illustration because you're the obvious illustration, Pastor Larry. I don't know if I could own Pastor Larry and call him brother at the same time. I don't know if I can own Eric and call him brother at the same time. I don't know if I can own Scott and call him brother at the same time. There would have to be at some point a soteriological shift that would convict me in calling someone who is my brother my property. I don't know. Maybe I'm here by myself. Maybe I, I, don't, I, I don't know. That, that's confusing to me. That's, that's painful, verse 15. That's verse 15. Um, says, for perhaps this is why he was separated. Somebody say separated. From you for a brief time. The word separated here is a word of sovereignty. <laughs> It's every scholar agrees that this is a sovereign word. It's a word where God sovereignly separated Philemon and Onesimus for a divine purpose beyond both of them. He said, for this purpose, I believe Onesimus was separated from you. I believe he was separated from you for God to do more in your separation than he could do with you together. <laughs> Help me today. Um, I wonder in our America how we can deal with separation in our country. We're separated, even in our multi-ethnic churches. <laughs> Wish I had a few moments to talk about it. Um, it's, I can't tell you how many African-Americans who I would say are in predominantly white environments, particularly churches and parachurches, who wrestle with the fact that first they got there because they liked being around privilege and they hated the black church. That's a whole nother sermon. 
And so what they did was they went over to the white church because the white church needed some blacks to ethnically mix the church. So instead of being called for what you're called to do based on gifting, your color makes you a professional integrationist. <laughs> and so what happens is, is when you go through the justice and race issues in our country and it constantly gets glazed over and not dealt with, and then you got over there realizing that you are still black. You, you, you're still black, and our brothers are still white, and there are chasms. You got invited to dinner because you're black. You're on staff because you're black. You, you have no preaching experience, but you're in the pulpit because you're black. Because tokenism is not reconciliation. Actually, tokenism does damage to qualified black people. I wish I had time. I, I just, it helped me today, God. Because what it does is it puts unqualified people in the first time of whites experiencing a black person in that space that has a job description that they're unable to functionally do and their failure marks a race. See, unqualified tokenism Help me today, God. Creates a further chasm. And you say, well, we tried. Yeah. And when you say we tried, you say, well, you tried with what? Yeah. And so when we look at here today and we look at the separation that we have, we're separated for so many reasons. And I can't tell you, oh, I, I got to, I got to, oh, 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 Help me today, God. Oh, no. Uh, I'm gonna just go here. Just too much. It is. He says, "I ask you to bring him in no longer as a slave, but more than a slave." What are you bringing him in as? As a dearly beloved or dearly loved sibling. Now. Oh, God, just pray for me, y'all. So I just recently read an article written in 1996 by J. Daniel Myers on racism in the academy. And I've bought really several resources that I'm working through to help frame how deep the racism in the body of Christ goes. And here I am in this text and Epiphany allows me to get, whenever I get a series, you guys allow me to have what I need to be able to exegetically study. And I got the top exegetical commentaries on Philemon. The top. Top. By scholars, all they do is parse words and write sentences. That's all they do. Now come to Philemon, and in the introduction of every major commentary, they say, before we even get started, Philemon is not about manumission. Now, what's manumission? Manumission is a highfalutin scholarly term about freeing a slave. So these white scholars start off, we talking about just recently written. We ain't talking about like in the 1800s. Wow. 
They said, this book is not about his freedom. And I said, I understand how they can say that. But then I got one of the top guys in my pocket, guy, background commentary guy. His name is Craig Keener. He used to teach at Eastern University. And I, 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 I hit him up. And I say, why is it your commentary is the only one that includes manumission in this sentence? And he says, I don't know why they keep doing that. And you don't know how deep the racism even goes in how Christian scholarship is done. When Ethiopia, oh, I, I can't go there now. I, next week, next week, next week. Whew, okay. So when we look at these realities of this level of brokenness, the text isn't broken our interpretation of it is. And this background commentary laid out the fact that what he's asking here is a reflection of what would have been done in their culture of a person being released from a temple cult in their society, stay with me, where a slave would be asked to be freed to serve the temple. He said this same idea is what Paul has in mind here that he would be serving not a building, but a people. So Paul is requesting for Onesimus to be freed. He says, unbelievers do this. That's his point. He said, unbelievers do this. And as unbelievers do this, he says, this is what we need to do, and we need to see this through this lens. And he calls him a dearly beloved brother. I love that. And then he ends it as he calls him the dearly beloved brother in verse 16. And he walks through and he says, as he says no longer say, he said, he especially so to me, but now much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. I'm going to end on this. He says, verse 17, and we'll pick up next week. So if you consider me a partner, Welcome him as you would me. Why would he say, welcome him as you would me? He said, don't just welcome him as a, as a brother. Welcome him as an apostle. <laughs> the Bible's filled with these things. In Jeremiah 34, it talks about the ending of any type of Hebrew slavery, even based on Exodus and based on Leviticus. But there's a passage that was read one day. Jesus is in Galilee, his hometown. <laughs> and he gets up and he covers his head with the covering. The Bible says he found the page in Isaiah where it was written these words. He says in Isaiah as I turn there, 61, yeah. verses 1, and verse 2a. It's interesting that he stops there. And I'll end on this. The Spirit of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is on me. Why is it on you, Jesus? Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim 
Jubilee to the captives. It can be translated Jubilee. And freedom to the prisoners to proclaim the favorable year or Jubilee of the Lord's favor. What is Jubilee? I know our charismatic, uh, well, the prosperity gospel people have hijacked this for financial gain. But this passage is about Jesus' earthly ministry. And one of his earthly ministry things was to both preach and free people. Preach and to free people. The gospel is here, family. The good news about Jesus Christ has a purpose. And if we're going to be family, we have to begin to dig in. What's the solution, Pastor? I'm not running to that aspect of the solution yet. We need to run to the gospel, and we need to run to laying out what is bearing fruit with keeping with repentance. What does that mean? That means that faith and repentance are family members. You can't have faith without repentance. You can't have repentance without knowing there's a problem. You can't repent of or turn away from what you don't know is a problem. And I am speaking out for the rest of my life against the need for the American church to stand up together and to begin for, I am, I, I am, I am calling for 400 years of repentance. 400 years. You have to spend as many years fixing this as many years you have spent destroying and pillaging and raping and stealing and removing. We are calling for there to be 400 years of repentance. But it starts with not deflecting. The gospel doesn't deflect. Why? Because the cross is us staring at our sin. Why was Jesus ugly to look at on the cross? Because he was the personification of our sin on the cross when it was laid on him. I'm done. I'll get off your back now. My prayer is that we would walk in lamenting. Not triumphalism that we would lament and that we would weep together and that we would look at history through the eyes of not the elite and the privileged, but the offended. Father. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.